there we go. We're recording now. Okay. Problem solved. All right. So... This helps us to understand when we're dealing with the Greek New Testament and its preservation that the art or science, you could probably use either term here because there is a science to this and there's a little bit of an art to this too when you're dealing with textual criticism. Uh, And again, textual criticism being the determining of the best reading that we have. That the art and science has been refined and it has been sharpened. And this got picked up Textual criticism really took off in the 1800s and early 1900s. It's just, and we have been the beneficiaries of it. Yes, has there been a lot of, um, has there been a, a big mess that's been created because of it? Yes, in the liberal realm, that's true. But there's also been a lot of benefit because of it. And we, we have such faithful and good translations because of that today. I mean, even the Legacy Standard Bible uh, is based on that on the fact that there is good textual criticism that has been done to demonstrate what is the most accurate text that we can possibly, uh, that we have received. All right, so it's been a refining and sharpening process. Uh, You hold in your hands the Word of God because of that. Uh, And you may see side notes in your Bible. And they might say, or this. Uh, some early manuscripts say this. The, some may even say, like, the MS, M.S says this. That would be like the, uh, or sorry, the MT, the M.T says this. That would be like the Masoretic text. And, and there's different designations, and you can go to the introduction of your, your Bible. They should all give you all of the abbreviations and what those mean. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about the preservation of Scripture, where I'm advocating for the fact that, God has preserved it to the point where it's either in your text or it's in the side note, if it's a good, faithful translation. There are some, obviously, translations that don't put side notes, and that's a bummer. But the side notes are actually really helpful because it's helping you to get to the actual every single word and that God has preserved that, either in the text or in the side note. It's either one or the other. Now, you may have this question. This question does come up sometimes. Why don't we have the original manuscripts? Why don't we have those original autographs that we can look at and see? Uh, you know, Specifically referring to the ones that the original author actually wrote so that we can have the exact word as it was delivered in the original in that time. And one of the answers to that is man's propensity to worship those manuscripts. I think that that would definitely be true. That would be, I mean, we already see how man's propensity is to worship other things in Christian tradition that are not as reliable and not as fantastic uh, as perhaps having the original text. But also one of the things, too, that's helpful is that the spreading out of the copies of the Word of God really made the Word of God like a wildfire that you can't stamp out. And that's really helpful. That's advantageous for the church so that those who would seek to destroy the Word of God, let's say we just had the original text and that's all we had and and there were no copies that were provided, then it would be very easy to isolate those texts and destroy them. Right? Not that God couldn't preserve them. Of course he could. But God has chosen to use the copying over and over and over again of the texts so that those texts survive and thrive, actually, which is incredible. So when you bring it all together, very similar to how we talked about the Old Testament, God used the dispersion of the early church in innumerable locations to preserve his word, just as God used the exile of Israel to preserve the Old Testament, God used the dispersion, the persecution of his church to push the word of God everywhere. And it made copies everywhere. You can see that theme. God uses evil and turns it for good. Yeah, that's the theme of the Bible. That's the theme of, of uh, redemption. <clears throat> and that's what he's done with these exiles. The persecution of the church, the exile of Israel. He's used it to push the word of God to multiple locations. So that's a really important point. And I think we need to rest, rest well in that. Now, 
kind of reverting back a little bit, I know we already talked about the Old Testament, but just to kind of give you a quick note here, um, in terms of the Old Testament, this kind of can get people, you know, like, anxious and worried, like, oh no, wait, what's going on here? Because there are some Old Testament words in the Hebrew text, specifically, that have been lost from our modern copies. And you're like, oh no, how much? Not very much. Very, very, very low. I'm talking about words, not verses. Uh, And it's in very few locations. Let me give you a couple examples of this, and then I'll tell you why this is not a big deal at all. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1 I don't know if we have time to go over there. I was going to go over there, but I don't know if we do. Uh, but let me just put it this way. If you go over to, your, to that text, it'll probably say Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he, ran, he reigned 32 years. Now, if you look at the Hebrew text, <laughs> this is great. It says The Hebrew text says this. Saul was one year old when he began to reign, and he reigned for two years. Okay, it's like, wow, so he finished when he was three. That's amazing. Uh, what's going on there? Well, it's a little bit hard just from the Hebrew text itself to know exactly what those words are. And the reason why it should make sense, like we talked about last time, the Hebrew text primarily is built upon a text that's only going back to about 1000 AD, or I should say AD 1000. Okay, that's not very old. Relatively speaking, that's very recent. Uh, And so that text is based upon that tradition that probably has lost those those numbers. Okay, you're like, oh no, this is a problem. What's going on here? Well, let me give you another example, and then we'll talk about it. Second Samuel chapter eight verse four also talks about this. In Second Samuel chapter eight, it says that David captured. Uh, 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. But then when you compare that with the other book that uh, parallels it, with, which is uh, 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 4, it says that David took from him 1,000 chariots and 7,000 horsemen. So it splits the 1,000 in the 700 and breaks it into 1,000 and 7,000, which is interesting, and then says 20,000 foot soldiers. Okay, so what's going on? Like, which one's more accurate? Well, let me just kind of cut to the chase on this one. First off, 1 Corinthians, First Corinthians, First Chronicles 18 is probably the more accurate rendering, probably. Uh, but why, why have we lost these, well, What's what's the big deal in losing these words here? Does that mean that we've lost some of the Bible to history? No, we haven't. And that's because we have multiple translations of the Hebrew Old Testament in other languages from earlier time. Right? We have Septuagint writings. We have Greek translations. We have Syriac Translations, and we talked about this last time, that those help us to get a, a better idea of what the original text was. Just because it's not in some of the Hebrew manuscripts that we have doesn't mean that we still don't have them. We still don't have access to them. And the, the work of the early church really helped to multiply that because of the dispersion into multiple languages. Okay, So that's really important. That's how we understand and know. Oh, 40 is probably what was intended. He, would, he, he didn't reign when he started at one years old. It was probably around 40 years old. And then, of course, you know, he reigned for 32 years and not two years. Okay, So that's the reason why we can have confidence in our text because, yes, the Hebrew is going to be very painstakingly accurate, but there will be times where it's not entirely possible to get every single word because we, the Hebrew texts don't always go back as far as we need to go. So we need to go to other translations, other languages to get that. So does this shake our confidence in Scripture? No. In fact, it's really cool to see this in the text that the, uh, the Word of God itself testifies to copies being made of itself. And it calls them the Word of God, which is really great, right? Obviously, if there's an error in the text, that error is not originally part of the Word of God, but it can still say, this came from the Word of God, right? And we even see that in... Ezra chapter 7 verse 14 where he's to bring Ezra is to bring the the scrolls of the law of God and then also we see this even in John chapter 5 and it talks about that as well there so that's important for us to see that that the copies are even talked about in that way you don't need the original manuscripts like well we don't have the word of God because we don't have the original no the copies are the are faithful and accurate 
uh, renderings of the original, and that's important for us. Okay. All right. God has preserved His Word by dispersing it across the globe. It cannot be destroyed. We've already talked about that, but it's it's important to emphasize that as well. Now, why did God allow corruption? And I may have already emphasized this a little bit, but I think that's a good question. Why, why does God allow corruption to happen in his text? Why does that have to be for his text and not for, you know, just for the rest of humanity and their literature and that kind of a thing? Why does God allow corruption? And I would argue it's because just like Proverbs, okay? Proverbs is like a book where everybody gets something out of Proverbs. Have you ever noticed that? Like, whether you're, you know, even a child, you can understand certain Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. A child can understand that, right? They get something out of that. But even the smartest men, right, the scholars, the commentators, they get lots out of Proverbs. And in fact, they're still sometimes scratching their heads over Proverbs or amazed by Proverbs. Everyone benefits from something like Proverbs. So I would argue like, like Proverbs or like the parables in Jesus' day, wisdom is available for those who seek it. But it's really not accessible if you're not willing to seek it. And that's kind of the point. That's what I would argue, is that the corruption of the text forces us to dive into the text and drill into it and seek out its original, uh, the original words. So that's, that's what I would argue there. And then just kind of concluding the whole notion of the preservation of Scripture. The providence of God has ensured that His people can work hard to know His Word with precision. And what it requires of us is it requires the church to work together to do this. There's not one person who's been able to do this perfectly, right? There's just, you need many, many people to work on this. And the more that, history's shown this, that the more that the church actually works together in this endeavor to prove out every word of God, the more abundantly clear that, that, it, that God has indeed actually preserved every word and it can be understood even down to every detail. That's what history has shown. The church must work together. It's when the church doesn't work together and they're not centering around the truth and they're dividing among one another, that's when it creates chaos. But when the church works together on this and actually seeks out the word of God as it originally was given to us, uh, we find that everything actually lines up. Very similar to how the Gospels are, right? When you see, like, well, that seems like a discrepancy in, from one Gospel to another. There's, there's a problem there. It seems like a contradiction. But when you work on that, you work through it, you begin to see there is what? There is harmony. There is a way to harmonize these things in a good way. And so you have to work at it. And when you work at it, you actually glean more out of it, which is great. Okay? All right. That's preservation of Scripture. Are there any questions that you have just on that topic specifically before we move on to canonicity? Good? Okay. Good. All right. Everyone's just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Great. Perfect. All right. Excellent. No, I'm sure you guys are all tracking. This is great. All right. Canonicity. This is a really fun one as well. One of my favorite topics. Canonicity defined. Let's talk about canonicity. Canonicity is basically just a fancy word to say, what are the books that should belong in the Bible? What are the books that should belong in the Bible? And it comes from this word canon. Not canon like boom, right? Not that canon, right? Double N? No, single N. Canon, right? This is referring to uh, a rod or a reed that would be used to measure something. You measure something in comparison to another thing. This would be the standard. What is the standard that the book must meet in order to be accepted into the Bible? That's the key. I think, that, I think this is one of those areas where we don't often get a lot of teaching on or we just don't know. And I think it's really helpful that we have a class like this, like BTI, where we can talk about these things. So we can have a good reason and understand why each book is included. Because when you look at uh, liberal scholarship... 
they will throw a lot of doubt into Scripture because of these other books that maybe should have belonged or shouldn't have, and and you see, uh, you know, books in Scripture that are doubted as to whether they're really canon. So, are we resting our faith on a book that maybe shouldn't be in there? That kind of a thing. Uh, we need to have a good answer for that. I want you to be mindful up front also that oral proclamation from a true prophet was also inspired, but not necessarily part of the canon of written scripture to be preserved for for the, the rest of history or for the rest of church history. But oral proclamation from a true prophet actually is inspired words. And there were maybe even written texts at that time that were meant to be locally preserved for that time, but then were not intended to be part of the canon of scripture for the rest of history. That's really important. Okay. Now, the need for canon... The apostles were Christ's formal representatives. They were the authorized, you could even say deputized representatives for the text of Scripture, especially as we we begin to see the New Testament take form. We see that clarified a little bit in John 20 as Jesus is commissioning his disciples in the upper room. And as the apostles died and passed off the scene, it became vital, it became important that their teaching would be preserved. That's important. Uh, that gets into a whole theology on um, whether Israel would repent in that era, and if they would during the apostolic era, would there ever really be needed a New Testament? That's, that's what's an interesting Interesting question, but I don't have time to get into that. It's really fun. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. But um, it's really it's really important to understand this. You can see some of the passages there, like First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse two. This is something that was on the apostles' hearts. Even we can see this testified in our New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything, and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Notice that word traditions, which is, uh, yes, there could be an oral element there as well, but it eventually gets codified into something that's written. So there is a concern that they stay with the teaching exactly as it was handed down. So there is a concern for the preservation of these things. Oops, I'm going a little too fast. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 also talks about this. It might be some verses that you're familiar with in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You can hear that the terminology in there. I delivered this over to you. This is the word which I proclaimed to you as good news. You hold fast to those things. There is a concern there. And of course, Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2 also brings this out as well. Very similar terminology there. The written apostolic witness then really became increasingly crucial uh, as we begin to see that their oral eyewitness testimony is passing off the scene in early church history. And as that oral eyewitness testimony passes off the scene, you need it codified. Why? So that those who are not eyewitnesses can trust in something that's written that doesn't change. Because over time, if you just pass oral tradition to oral tradition to oral tradition, it's like the game of telephone, right? It gets changed over time because you can't hold in, even if you're doing everything you can to listen very carefully, you can't hold in all of that information with precision. And so little things begin to change. And as little things begin to change, bigger things begin to change, yes? So written testimony is very important. In the end, God providentially preserved the apostolic writings through local churches. It's just by means of local churches. Pastors, copyists, right? You can call them scribes, I guess. Church councils, etc. They become 
a means of guarding the text of Scripture as it's handed down. The doctrine of canonicity, therefore, then deals with, and this is very important, it deals with man's acceptance of the apostles and prophets' writings of Scripture. It deals with man's acceptance of them as Scripture. Very important. In other words, God determined what books belong in the canon, not man. That's very important. God determines what belongs in his canon, not man. Man simply what? Observes it and affirms it. That's important. Okay, Man simply observes it and affirms it. You will hear a lot of people who don't really often know what they're talking about when it comes to this issue. And it's like, well, man created the canon. Man determined the canon. That's not true. God actually determined the canon. Man just observes it. And you have to have objective evidence for why each book appears in the canon to show that God is the one that determined it. It wasn't just a subjective call by man. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the objective evidence for why books belong in the canon. Okay? All right. But before we get there, we have a couple other things to talk about. The existence of the canon. The existence of the canon. The process of recognition did not establish the canon, and this is what we just talked about, but it simply vindicates that which had already long since in time past been established. Uh, This is important because we must not think that there was no general conviction as to what was Scripture before, let's say, A.D. 400. There is a lot of people that think that way, especially if they're not super familiar with the background of how the the Bible came to be. It's like, well, there was just so much debate, and it was just heated, and no one really knew what was Bible, and so they just created these councils, and they decided to just kind of come up, this is our codified standard, and then we're good to go. And then by A.D. 400, everything calmed down, and everyone's like, I guess I can agree with that. That's not how it was. That's not how it was. Because of heretical confusion during that time, there was a little bit of that going on. There were also imperial decrees, like, well, this is what we've determined as the state is going to be the Bible. It's like, okay, well, that doesn't actually determine the Bible. Um, So there was much discussion, and they needed to talk about it to get on the same page. But overwhelmingly so, you could already see in early church history that most of the books, everyone was already like, this is obviously part of the canon. This is obviously part of the canon. And everyone was basically agreeing with that. So what we're seeing is that discussion is really more of a record of that official talking point. It's an official record of how they work through any minor disagreements on some issues. And they were very minor. It's, it's amazing how uh, liberal scholarship will try to blow up some of these things and and make it a bigger deal than it really was. It's not. It really wasn't a big deal. And the key point, again, is that the canon was not created by man. It was recognized by men through the witness of the Holy Spirit. We must also not suppose that the church had no recognition of these these authoritative books. Before 8400, I talked about that. Um, rather, these basically these church councils that they had merely ensured that all pastors and theologians could be on the same page uh, in the context of other books that had surfaced in and around those uh, those years between 180, 100, 80, 300, and, and so forth. They needed to make sure that these books that are kind of surfacing were not actually legitimate, that kind of a thing. So, all right, now let's talk about. Recognition of the canon. This is where it gets at least a little bit more exciting, at least for me, uh, again, because I'm a nerd, and so I like these kinds of things. But here we go. Recognition of the canon. When we come to the Old Testament, recognition of the Old Testament is really established by the time that the Old Testament is complete. I mean, Malachi being the last book written in 400s, BC, 400 BC. So we're talking about 5th century BC in the time of Ezra. You basically have a recognition that this is the canon from the Jewish scriptures. And it's pretty much set in stone. And it's good to understand and know that the scriptures that were accepted by Israel are the same scriptures that are accepted by the church and by Christianity. So Old Testament, there's not a lot of... uh, 
there's not a ton of debate on the Old Testament in that way. There is a little bit when it comes to the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha being those intertestamental books, the books that are between Malachi and Matthew, or, or between Malachi and the first book of the New Testament, probably James, actually. Uh, that period of time, there were many books that surfaced. And the question is, well, why don't we also claim those? Well, the Jewish community doesn't really claim those as the Word of God either. That's important. But um, they don't acclaim authority. They don't even come across authoritative, which is very interesting. The Jewish authors, like I just said, didn't really consider them God's words. Jesus and the New Testament authors didn't also consider them as Scripture. That's important. Like, yeah, but there's a quote from one of them in Jude. I've heard of this in Enoch or something, right? It's a quote of them. Yeah, that's because it's not necessarily considering it as Scripture, but it is validating the fact that this was a true claim, or at least this was said historically. He also quotes Cretans, uh, the, the proverb about Cretans. So should we take that as Scripture as well? I don't think we should. Right, that's important. So some teachings contradict Scripture. We actually see that pretty clearly. Uh, and this one's really important. These books typically just stray away from the typical hermeneutic of just the rest of the Bible. They apply a different hermeneutic altogether. And a lot of it is very allegorical. The hermeneutics change quite a bit between the Testaments. And you may wonder, why? Because, this this is my rationale on this, and I think it makes a lot of sense, because when the Jews are taken into exile, the goal is to try and explain away why they're in exile. And you have to change hermeneutics to do that. Okay, that's, that's my argument. Okay, um, And so there's all different kinds of new hermeneutic methods that come up as a result of that, which is what we see happen even in our day. People want to change the way they see Scripture because it doesn't fit their worldview. And in order to do that, you have to change hermeneutics, yeah? You have to change your interpretation, Okay, good. So I know I keep reemphasizing this, but canon always is affirmed by God's people by means... Oh, excuse me. No, actually, this is a little bit of a new thought here. But canon always is affirmed by God's people by means of the culture that immediately receives the book. This is a, this is a key concept that you need to come away with. The canon is always affirmed by God's people by means of the culture that immediately receives the book. If let's say from the Old Testament perspective, the Jews who received the book could not accept it, then it's disqualified from being in the canon. That's an important point. Why is that important? Why, do they must, why must they be able to accept it in its time? Because they knew probably what? Who wrote it and its authenticity. That's very important. The canonicity of Scripture is based in large part on the historicity and its accuracy of that historicity. That's very important. That the people who were there in that time understood this was written by so-and-so, and it wasn't written by somebody who's false. Okay, that's important. So as the Jewish community accepts books into the canon, they're accepting them immediately. Does that make sense? They're not accepting them like, oh, 500 years later, you know what? We're just going to include this book into our Bible. No. It has to be the immediate generation that's there. They saw it. And then, of course, we rest upon that eyewitness testimony. That's important. Okay? That's a valid way of accepting things into the canon. A not valid way of accepting things is... Joseph Smith comes up with a book randomly and says, this was delivered by God, and it's 1,800 years after the fact. And, or, right? or Islam reinvents history about... 2,000 years after it happened, right? That, you, that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable because it's not part of the eyewitness testimony of the generation that was there. Okay, that's important. All right, now, the recognition of the canon, and this is where we kind of, the rubber meets the road, and this is where it gets, I think, good. The New Testament canon 
as, as we're talking about the New Testament specifically, was established in the first century. It was very much established in the first century. I know some people will say again, you know, oh no, it was established in the 300s or 400s. No, it was established in the first century. But the historical recognition of that canon there was um, some precision that was done on like just a handful of books to ensure that, that those were actually indeed or should be included into the canon. So let's talk about how the New Testament was recognized. And we're going to talk about a couple principles here. And we'll start, number one, with the competency principle. The competency principle. And it's really just kind of more of a disclaimer up front. Technically, only God can really witness to himself, as Hebrews 6 talks about. Only he can ultimately justify something to be truly true, authentic, and he is really the final judge and jury of what is in the canon. Okay? You're like, well, how does that help us? Well, right, it's just a good disclaimer up front. And we'll see this later, but the Bible has its own self-witness to the books that should belong in the canon. I think you'll find this kind of fun, and I'll show it to you in a little bit here. Okay, That's the competency principle. It's just a little disclaimer up front so that we don't, we don't miss that. We don't forget that. The chronological principle. God set the boundaries of canonicity by announcing the close of the Old and New Testaments. That's really important. The last book that's written in the Old Testament, I just mentioned earlier, is... Malachi, right? Should we see then something in Malachi that would hint to the fact that there's going to be some kind of a closing and that there's going to be a reigniting of things later on? That's exactly what we see. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Very important because this was prophesied earlier back in, actually, Deuteronomy, that there would be a prophet that would rise up uh, like Moses. And then, of course, now he's referring to it like Elijah, which Elijah and Moses has a lot, have a lot of connections in Scripture together. And the point is, is like, now that that's being mentioned, those are the final words of Malachi. Now what, now what are the people of God supposed to be looking for? Elijah, right? They're supposed to be looking for Elijah. So anything that is written before Elijah comes should be very suspect as to whether that really belongs in the Word of God. Does that make sense? The New Testament has a very similar conclusion. What's the last book that's written in the New Testament? Revelation, exactly. You're like, is that a trick question? No, it's not. Right? You're like, wait, no, it was Revelation really? I'm not sure. Right? Revelation. Turn your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 22. You need to see this one in your text. Revelation chapter 22. You're like, when is he going to get to the Bible? Yeah, now we will. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. You've probably read these words, maybe in the context of canonicity before. This is important. I want to point out a couple of things that are very critical in the way the terminology is given to us. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone should add to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written into this book. Verse 19. And if anyone should take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his portion from the tree of life and from the holy city, the things which are written in this book book. Very important terminology. If someone hears the words of the what? What does it say in verse 18? The words of the prophecy of this book. That's important terminology. Now, we should notice something. When we get to the next verse, it's what? It's different. What does it say? If anyone takes away from the what? The book 
of this prophecy. If you have a translation, you probably don't. If you have a translation that kind of glosses over and kind of treats those exactly the same, they haven't done their homework because that's very important. What's it referring to? The prophecy of this book. That's the prophecy that's what? Contained in the book of Revelation, right? Does that make sense? Okay. You're like, okay, so that's just Revelation. No, because what is Revelation? Revelation is the conglomeration of every prophecy, what? From the rest of the Bible, yes? Revelation is the most... It's the most dense book of allusions and quotes of the entire Bible that we have. Because it's basically just bringing everything what? Together. And it's bringing it to conclusion. Yes? That's exactly what Revelation is. The prophecy of this book is more than just Revelation. It's referring to the prophecy of what? The entire Bible. If anyone adds to this, then... God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Ah! So we're not just talking about revelation here. But now when you get to verse 19, what does it say? If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. So now you can see it where revelation is now seen as a book within the what? Prophecy. It's looking at it from two different angles. It's looking at the same thing from two different angles, right? The first one is emphasizing the entire Bible. The second one is emphasizing Revelation within the entire Bible. And if you take away from anything that's in Revelation, is what he's saying in verse 19, then you are taking away from Scripture. Verse 19, then, is very important. Verse 19 seals the canon for Revelation. It's, or in other words, it seals Revelation into the canon. That's what verse 19 does. Verse 19 seals Revelation into the canon of Scripture. What does verse 18 do? Verse 18 seals the entire canon. Does that make sense? And it's done. Very important terminology. People will try to argue like, well, that's not what those verses are saying. It's not sealing the canon, you know, and we can still have prophecy from the Lord. No. That's not. The terminology is as accurate as it possibly can be. Okay? It's just that people have to ignore the terminology. They have to downplay the, spe- the specificity of it. That's important. And that really should cause us to recognize that this is truly the termination of the gift of prophecy. It's, it really terminates the gift of, of prophecy which was occurring quite often in the New Testament. There's no doubt. That's obviously true. But now it is finally finished. And all Scripture is now concluded, and you cannot add to it. That's why when people say, I have a word from the Lord. No, you don't. Because Revelation 22, verse 18, says that that is adding to the prophecy of Scripture. Okay? All right, the credential principle. That was the chronological principle. Now the credential principle. God produced canonical books through an authenticated prophet or an apostle. And this is really important. Like you can't just it can't just be anybody. It can't just be Joe Schmo or Joe Smith, Joseph Smith. You can't be anyone like that, right? You just can't have that. Okay? You have to be an authenticated Prophet or an apostle? And what were the signs of an apostle? It was often accompanied by what? Miraculous things. That's why someone like Joseph Smith could say, well, I can read Egyptian hieroglyphs. And then it proves, no, you can't. So what? You're a false prophet. You don't qualify. That's important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about this. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the prophets and the ministry of the prophets there as well. You've got to be an authenticated prophet, an authenticated apostle. Ancient Israel actually uh, believed correctly that Moses wrote as God's spokesman. That was just accepted because it was so clear and the miracles testified to that in that first generation. That's why everyone understood that. There was no dissenting voice. They couldn't. If they dissented, what happened to them? 
they would fall into the ground because of an earthquake, like they did there uh, in Numbers chapter 16, okay, in Korah's rebellion. If you dissent, you die because there's miraculous things that are happening against you. So this is why ancient Israel received his works as canonical. And notice that they didn't just accept Moses' works because, oh man, the literary style is so good, and it just, it writes so well, right? Or there's some kind of linguistic phenomena there that we just can't explain, and wow, that's such a great book. That is not how they accepted Genesis, or Exodus, or Deuteronomy, right? It's because this was someone who was authenticated, and it was proved by signs and wonders in that time. So the principle for canonizing even the Pentateuch, even that is then carried over to every book that qualifies after the fact. And so we, have, we see that over and over and over again with every book of the Old Testament. So in other words, and we will, um, we will see this actually with another one here in a second, which is the context principle. The primary qualification used to determine canonicity was that the people of God who first received the book must have immediately recognized it as canon. And again, we already talked about that. In other words, they witnessed the qualification of that person. They know that he's the one that wrote it. And even perhaps that he had signs and wonders that accompanied him there. Now, this is really fun. I did want to get to this before we wrap up today, but turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. I want to show to you here, in terms of the credential, I don't know, I didn't quite know which one to put this under, but it just kind of falls under all of them. But Scripture testifies to itself, and it actually, this is what's so cool. Have you ever heard of like what's called a daisy chain? You know, a daisy chain where it's like um, you, you connect one thing to another, uh, you do that like with audio. There's um, there's ways where you can have like uh, multiple speakers laid out, even even um, cordless speakers, right? They're daisy chained together so that they're all communicating on the same system and and use the same microphone system and that kind of thing. You can just connect them together and just like link, 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 link. This is how scripture actually works, and it actually testifies to itself and seals previous books. So that when you have another book come out, it seals the previous book. And I want to show it to you a little bit. Genesis chapter 50, verse 26. Uh, This is the last verse of Genesis. It says, Then Joseph died, 120 years old, and they embalmed him, and they placed him in a a chest, or in an, actually literally says an ark, (laughs) in uh, in Egypt. Now, this is interesting because when you go one page over to Exodus, okay, Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, it says what? Then what? Joseph what? Died. And all his brothers and all that generation. Oh, you already said that. You don't need to say that again. No, there's going to be this daisy chain of connections that show what? Now, as Exodus kicks off, it what? Seals the canon for Genesis. Okay, turn over to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, verse 38. It says, For the cloud of Yahweh was over the tabernacle by day, and it was as a fire by night over it, before the eyes of all the house of Israel um, during all of their journeys. Okay, now, there's another verse here even prior to that, where, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter into the tent of testimony, okay, the tent of meeting, because the cloud was hovering over it. This is an important point. When you go to Leviticus chapter 1, flip over a page, what's the terminology here? Chapter 1, verse 1. Then he called out to Moses, and Yahweh spoke to him. From where? The tent of meeting. Okay? What is Leviticus doing? It's picking up where what? 
Exodus left off. It's using the exact same terminology. What's it doing? Leviticus is sealing the canon for Exodus. Okay? And you can do this with Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and even Ruth. Because how does Ruth, what are the first words from Ruth? In the days that the what? Judges were judging. It seals the canon for what? Judges. Like, well, what about Ruth? What does Ruth end with? The last word for Ruth is David. So what, what, who's going to seal the canon for Ruth? It's First and Second Samuel. Because First and Second Samuel is basically what? First and Second David. I mean, I feel like First and Second Samuel is actually kind of a misnomer. It kind of should be renamed. Like, it's not really about Samuel, is it? It's about what? It's about who? David. Yes? You can see this time and time again that, in other words, the intertextuality of Scripture, the connections between the texts are demonstrating from multiple angles. And it's not just like a singular book. It, it starts out that way, where a singular book is sealing the canon for a previous book. And it kind of is teaching you the concept of sealing of the canon. But as we get into the prophets, they begin to seal each other in a web of connections. It's really cool. And you begin to see, like, okay, Obadiah is probably the first book written in the prophets. Then comes Joel. And Joel literally quotes Obadiah. It literally quotes Obadiah like no other book does. And that demonstrates, okay, so these books are connected. And that there's actually a sealing of the canon for Obadiah. Even Job can be sealed by Proverbs. Uh, and you could say by extension Ecclesiastes, but really Proverbs. Because... Job's whole point is what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what he says in Job 28, 28. Well, who also says that? Proverbs. In fact, it's like the main point of Proverbs, isn't it? Right? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. They literally quote, he quotes Job. And at that point, you realize Solomon recognizes the canonicity of Job. That's the point, is that Scripture is sealing itself. And you can do this even in the New Testament, where 2 Peter seals 1 Peter, and 1 Peter seals James. And so you can see how the, even the order of your New Testament actually has a canon element to it, where it goes James, and then 1 Peter, and 2 Peter. I don't think it follows that strictly, but it does seem to follow that a lot. 1 John seals John, and 2 John seals 1 John, and so forth. There are ways that you can demonstrate this in the text itself. That's really helpful, because it puts canonicity in a realm that's more objective than it is just subjective. Okay, I know that was a lot. We'll keep moving forward here, okay? There's also the consistency principle. The consistency principle. God superintended all canonical books so that they were totally harm, uh, harmonious with previous revelation. And I think that's just kind of a natural extension of what we've already talked about. The fact that if these books are connected and if they're even intertextual, then the point is, is that they're going to be harmonious in the fact that they're going to be consistent with one another from beginning to end. And that's exactly what we find. You know, Acts 17, verse 11, talks about how the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were seeking the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Why were they seeking the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so? Unless what? These things can be harmonized. That's important. Okay, so that's the consistency principle. The conviction principle. And I'm moving fast because I know we're almost out of time here. The Holy Spirit persuades Christians of the authenticity of a book. That's a little bit more subjective, obviously so, admittedly so. That's a subjective argument. But it is something that's hard to argue with when you see that throughout church history universally and globally, that there is a conviction element that we all have when it comes to what belongs in the canon. I mean, even the fact that you have cults who we really wouldn't consider as part of us, right? Who agree with the same corpus of scriptures and then they just add to it, right? But they can at least agree on a subset of, okay, the 66 books of the Bible are truly Bible. And so that, that stunning unanimity of Christian communities arguing for the same set of books is 
very powerful, isn't it? And they recognize that there's a difference between the apocrypha books, the, the um, apocryphal books, or the pseudepigraphal books. They recognize there's something different about those. All right, and then the context principle. The context principle, and this is again one that I have hit on already, but I think it's really important, and it's sometimes overlooked. The local context of God's people must have validated the book. That's very important. The local context must have validated it. In other words, and this question was asked to us in seminary when we were <laughs> we were in uh, New Testament critical studies and stuff. Uh, what if we find through archaeological studies like the letter to the Laodiceans. Oh no, maybe that book should belong in the canon. You know, if we had time, I'd even like ask that to you. Be like, what do you guys think? Like, would that, should that belong in the canon? But you see how this principle, the context principle, would refute that? See, if you have that, you understand it can't. Why? Because you don't have the people who were there to authenticate that this is actually a genuine letter. From who? From Paul. People who actually knew Paul, who were there, could say, yes, this is from him. That there's not going to be any dissenting voice. Because basically, if we ever found something like that, it would basically always be up for debate. And we would never know for sure, is this really a genuine letter? Okay. So just to repeat, God determined what books belong in the canon. Man simply just observes and affirms it. It is not something that we actually determine for ourselves. It's something that God's done. And there are objective criteria, as you can see here, that help us to get to that point, to understand that. Okay. All right, we didn't get to the Synoptic Gospels, and that's okay, because I might actually move the Synoptic Gospels to another time. It does kind of play a role into canonicity, into the preservation of Scripture, but it almost deserves its own special time where we can just discuss that specifically. So I might just go ahead and do that later. And what we'll do next week is get back into the Bible and talk about Exodus and finish up a little bit of Genesis. I didn't finish that up, but we'll talk about Exodus next time. Sound good? All right. All right, thank you so much. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get, we'll get going here. Father, thank you so much for the time around your word and for the fact that we can trust in your word and that these books of Scripture, they truly do, that the ones that we have here in our Bible, they belong in the canon, and we know, we can tell. We are saved by grace through faith. We are given eyes to see, and as we read the text, our faith is encouraged by these books. That's subjectively true. But even objectively true, we recognize that your Bible, your words, they are testifying to themselves. Each book seals canon of previous books that come before it. And Lord, that helps us. That, gar- that, that galvanizes our faith even further. And so Lord, we pray that we would just come away with greater faith so that we may worship you even that much more in, in truth and we thank you so much that we'll have this time together in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing you in the service there.